BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. February 2012, Cindy Vanderheiden and Chevy Wheeler's remains were recovered and the families could finally put their daughters to rest. After everything they had been through, surely this was the end of their nightmare, wasn't it? When Cindy was recovered, only three bones were found, her skull, a jawbone, and a femur bone. She was identified from dental records the sheriff's office called John Vanderheiden, Cindy's father, and asked if the family would like the sheriff's office to arrange the cremation for them. With so few remains, the family agreed. John later found out that the sheriff's office had actually been back to the site where Cindy had been found and did a further dig without his knowledge. In total, they had actually recovered 95% of Cindy's remains. John tells us how he found out about this. I was up there on a news conference. They wanted to interview me again, so I was sitting there interviewing them, and they wanted to know what I did. And I said, well, there was only three parts of it. And then they went and interviewed Sheriff Morrigan. He said, oh, no, we called Mr. Vanderheide and told him that we found 95% of his daughter. That's when I called him a liar. 
And so they called me and I called him, no, he's a liar, you can call my daughter. Because he said, I know I told Mr. Vanderhaden and his daughter Kim in Wyoming that we found the rest of their daughter. I never did get the remains. They had all the remains from them and they sent them to the cremation officer because we didn't know we had all. Can you imagine, after everything the family has already gone through, they were not told that there was another dig that happened and that actually 95% of her remains had been recovered. Cindy's family were not given the opportunity to have a proper memorial, and they were not given the opportunity to bury their daughter, and on top of that, they were accused of lying. We have seen the paperwork that supports that Sheriff Moore made the call to John Vanderheiden to tell him that further remains had been recovered. However, it is not signed off or dated, so who knows if it's true and accurate. We did try and contact Sheriff Moore for comment, but we did not receive a response. What we do know is that the family say that they did not receive such a call, and what have they got to gain by not telling the truth? Unfortunately, this was not the end of Cindy's family's ordeal. There are five basic steps to a cremation. One, the deceased must be identified and proper authorization to conduct the cremation must be obtained. Two, the body remains are prepared. Medical devices and jewelry is removed if desired. The body is then placed in a proper container, which would be made of wood or other sturdy combustible material, such as cardboard. Three, the container with the body or remains in is then moved to the cremation chamber, also called a retort. This is an industrial furnace. The chamber is heated to 1400 to 2000 degrees Fahrenheit for one and a half to two hours. Four, following cremation, a magnet is used to remove any metal that may be left behind, such as medical pins or screws. The remains are then ground to create what we think of as ashes. Five, finally the ashes are transferred to a temporary container or an urn provided by the family. As a general rule, the average person's ashes will weigh between three and 10 pounds or around three and a half percent of the person's body weight. When Cindy went missing, she weighed around 130 pounds. So in Cindy's case, we would expect her ashes to weigh around four and a half pounds. Why then does the receipt from NorCal Crematorium in Sacramento say that the cremation box containing Cindy van der Heiden's partial remains weighed 70 pounds? You may be thinking, maybe the 70 pounds was the weight of the skeletal remains rather than the ash remains. But the skeleton normally weighs about 12 to 15% of your body weight. Or in Cindy's case, 15 and a half to 19 and a half pounds. We will probably never know if there was an error on the report or not. We did try to contact the crematorium to ask them about it, but they did not respond to our request. John did receive some ashes, but certainly not 70 pounds of remains. We've done some research, but we don't believe it is possible to test these at the moment to see if they just belong to one person, as there are no bone fragments left. So was it a genuine mistake, or was something else happening? You will hear some further evidence in later episodes that might make you change your mind. 
We asked John if there were any details we could try and find out for him and his family. The only one would be to uh, find out who else was cremated with my daughter. The 70 pounds of bones that was in there that should have only been 13. Due to the time that lapsed between the police finding DNA evidence from Chevy in Sherman Tyne's cabin back in 1985 and them being able to test the evidence in 1998, there were huge advancements in DNA testing technology. In the second part of this episode, we're going to be talking to David Middleman, who is an expert on DNA, to find out more. My name is uh, David Middleman, and I run Othram, uh, which is a forensic laboratory that does advanced DNA testing to enable human ID from any kind of DNA evidence. We work with law enforcement. You would either be within a law enforcement agency or you'd be contracted by law enforcement. So we'll work with foundations or other companies that work with law enforcement, but the, the work is all centered around a legitimate law enforcement investigation. We asked David how he got into the field of DNA. I'm actually, um, I'm a one-trick pony in the, in the DNA testing space. That's all I've ever done. So I've been um, working on DNA testing technologies for almost 25 years. I started in the Human Genome Project in the 90s and helped uh, with the effort to sequence the DNA of the first uh, human DNA uh, sample. And, uh, and then from there, worked on a lot of technologies, trained to Baylor College of Medicine, and mostly worked on technologies to read and write genomes. And, and most of it was in the context of research in biomedicine. I had a small detour when I sold my first company to a consumer testing company and got involved in consumer genetics and genealogy and all those sorts of things. And then in late 2018, started Othram with a, a crew of folks that I've worked with for years some as many as uh, 10 years. And, um, and, and we all wanted to kind of take the work that we had built and apply towards biomedicine and, and apply it towards another interesting problem, which we think actually has significant impact, which is the forensic sciences. And so, so that's how Othram was born. We work on current cases as well. You know, there's, there's a certain fascination with some of these older cases. And it's, it's certainly a good demonstration of technology and capability to be able to work a case that is decades old. But, but there's some significant value in obviously working contemporary cases because you can um, not only solve a case, but also also prevent you know, folks from continuing to commit crime. And, um, and so, so in a sense, you're, you're, you have a, a multiple impacts in that you can solve a case, find out who is responsible, and then prevent future crime. Okay, in our case, um, a young girl called Chevy Wheeler went missing in 1985 and they had a suspect, the police had a suspect, and they found some of her DNA in a cabin. And the police kept the DNA, but it wasn't tested until... I don't think the technology was available until late 1998 to send it for the testing. 
are you able to tell us about the development of DNA testing between that period? You know, even in the late 80s, folks were looking at ways to, to perform forensic DNA testing to help sort out who might be involved in a, in a crime scene. Around 1994, the FBI launched a program nationally, and this, was, this is CODIS, this is a program that still exists today, that centers around the collection of a handful of markers. It started out as a few markers and it's grown. Right now it's like 20 markers, 20 markers that are called STRs. And the way CODIS works is that if you catch a criminal and they're convicted, you can measure these 20 markers in their DNA and then that way, if they go on to commit a crime somewhere else, particularly across state lines, maybe they committed a crime in Texas and then later commit a crime in California, that the system would allow you to essentially track repeat crime. If you see those 20 markers again, then you know that there's a good chance that person that committed the crime in Texas also committed it in California. So that's us, CODIS. STR testing and you know other sorts of testing like that have been available for decades, uh, CODIS testing became popular in the uh, in the 90s and to this day continues to be the workhorse of how people solve these crimes. That's pretty much what's been around. There's new kinds of testing that you can do that can sample anywhere from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers instead of just 20. And these are all based on technologies that have been used quite extensively in medicine and other areas of science for a couple decades as well, but are just now making their way into the forensic space. And I think that they're going to just radically transform how forensic testing is done. I don't think they necessarily replace CODIS. I just think they complement CODIS. If you don't have a match in CODIS, and you know, for an unidentified person who's probably not a criminal, for an unidentified person, CODIS is gonna help you ID the person less than 1% of the time. And even if we look at like sex assault, so there's a big push to clear the sex assault backlog, right? These sex assault kits, they're being resolved at, uh, you know, the identities of the, of the suspects uh, that, whose DNA might be in these kits. They're identified 15% of the time, one five. So 85% of the time when you clear, as they say, uh, a sex assault kit, you haven't actually identified after the CODIS test who the person is. You might put them into CODIS, but they're not tied to a known person. And so there leaves a lot of room when CODIS is not the low-hanging fruit answer. There leaves a lot of room to determine how to figure out who someone is. And, and that's where these kind of more expanded forms of testing that utilize tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of markers come in. The other thing is that CODIS testing, although pretty sensitive, there's, there's some minimum requirements. You need DNA of a certain quantity and quality. For example, if you have a single hair with no root, the, the general understanding is that you're not going to do CODIS or STR testing. The reason why is that there's nuclear DNA on, on, on a hair shaft, but it's just degraded. It's in little itty bitty pieces. And it's not accessible to CODIS testing, which uh, again is, is, is based on STRs which are long runs of DNA that are measured. And so you need, you need these long, long pieces of DNA to be able to measure those markers. And um, these new methods don't require necessarily super long pieces of DNA. They can work on degraded amounts. They can work on low quantity amounts. So that's kind of where DNA testing's been. I think, I think by and large in 2020, 
the predominant form of testing remains CODIS, but in the last couple of years, I think everyone's seen that there's tremendous promise in expanding the toolkit of DNA testing um, technologies to, to access evidence that otherwise can't be accessed with CODIS or to step in when CODIS does not produce an identity and help figure out an identity. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. We asked David what the process is for getting DNA tested and how long it takes. As we all know that it doesn't take the 10 minutes that is shown on CSI. The way we do things is we have an online system that law enforcement can access. And what they do is they upload the information they have about the evidence they have. And sometimes they have evidence. So they've got the blood stain and they've got the hair that you mentioned. Sometimes they have a state lab that's already derived a DNA extract from that evidence. And the reason why is because they wanted to put it into CODIS and so they've already got an extract. So they'll need to outline for us all the evidence they have, any extracts or other work products they have. And then they send us the lab reports that kind of inform on what kind of DNA it is, the quality, quantity, all these little things that would help us understand the condition of that material. Based on all that, we can kind of make a more educated game plan because little changes in something from like quantity, quality, mixtures, all that influences how we do what we do. So it's a very like iterative process with law enforcement. We review their case in detail, go through the case notes with them, and then depending on what they're trying to learn and depending on what evidence and work products and extracts are available, we then make a, a game plan. And we actually send them off shipping instructions with a barcode. And this barcode is uh, is affixed to the side of the package that they're gonna send in, and we use it to track. So 
if something shows up at our doorstep and it doesn't have the barcode, then it, it, it doesn't make it to the lab. It's rejected and held um, until we can figure out where it came from. We gotta have a really controlled process and we don't want things kind of showing up willy nilly. And so we have an evidence room, much like the one you'd see at a precinct or in a, in a, in a state lab that is locked down and that's where evidence is received. And it's either shipped to us or it might be hand delivered. In a lot of cases, people will come out to us and just hand deliver the evidence. Um, and once it's there, it's logged, checked, and we, we match it against a manifest. So is everything in that box uh, what they said what they were gonna send? Is there any discrepancies? Only at that point where everything's there, we then send it to the lab. And, and one step that I excluded is, of course, upon delivery, we exchange identification and fill out documentation for chain of custody so that we can keep track of how the uh, samples are passed from person to person and where it goes after that. Our entire process is done in-house. We're the only lab in the United States that does everything in-house. And, and we're very particular about process and chain of custody to make sure we can document um, everything and everyone that has happened upon um, the, the evidence. Once it gets into our lab, uh, if there's evidence, we'll do an extraction, a DNA extraction. If it's already an extract, we just we move to the next step, which is call it basically QC. And there's a QC step that we use to basically measure using our own proprietary process properties about the DNA. And then essentially we score it so that we know if it's going to work. We're almost perfect at predicting if we can generate a good DNA profile. And so we just don't charge people if we can't generate it. We're very sensitive to budgets, particularly in law enforcement. And the last thing we want to do is spend a dollar on a case that we can't bring value to. So, so we go through a QC process, which, you know, sparing all the details will tell us at the end, is this a suitable candidate for the testing that we're going to do? Once we get that uh, piece cleared, we'll perform the actual testing. And that's going to be a sequencing-based process. So we're using sequencing to access all the nucleic acids that are in there, all the DNA in there, and dump all that data um, into a computer system, which then works to basically piece all the little fragments of DNA together. If there's a mixture, we'll need to sort that out. In this case, you've given me, it sounds like it's you know, hair from one person, obviously, and maybe some blood from that victim. Hopefully it's not a mixture. And so we sort it out and we collect, like I said, anywhere from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers. And these go into this data file. You know, people call it a um, a genealogical kit file, a SNP file, whatever, whatever, whatever the folks want to call it, it's fine with us. It's basically a data file that has a bunch of these single nucleotide changes. And, and again, you know, outside of the forensic space, I think people just call them SNPs. And so once we've got these lists of markers or SNPs, whatever you want to call them, then this file is something we can then upload to a genealogical database. And, and it might be that we upload it to GenMatch, which is a public database. We have our own database called DNA Solves at our company. There, there are multiple databases you can use to upload these profiles and look for relatives. And if you can find enough relatives, especially on both sides of the family, the unknown person's mother's side and father's side, then what you can do is you can essentially construct a scaffold and, 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 and put the matches along with this unknown onto a family tree and, and essentially figure out by working the tree back generations to uh, a, a common ancestor 
um, and then back down to the contemporary folks that would have been descendants from this common ancestor. You can, through process of elimination, try to figure out if there are candidate people that might be your unknown. That's one way to do it. Uh, obviously, that's what you do if you have no clue who you found. Sometimes you might have a family member that suspects that their loved one could be the one that is deceased, and then that we can just do direct one-to-one -one comparisons. But the value of our test is that we've got, again, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers, and that allows us to very, very accurately and sensitively detect even distant relationships. You could be your second cousin, um, and we'll know, we'll know for sure. Whereas conventional CODIS or STR testing really doesn't help you unless you're looking for a sibling or parent-child relationship. So something really direct, or you're matching against yourself, which is the original intent behind CODIS. It doesn't take long to do the work. The turnaround time is really kind of a, a trade-off between how long do you want it to take and how much do you want to pay. You know, testing in all scientific labs, including forensics labs, is done in batch. So you just want to make sure you have enough DNA material to run. And, and, and it makes it cost-effective for everyone when you run you know, at scale. And so right now, as it turns out, with our workload, we generally return results within about 12 weeks. So what that means is if you were to turn around uh, a piece of evidence by mail or in person to our doorstep on day one, then 12 weeks from that day, we'd expect to have GEDmatch kits uploaded um, and we're doing some genealogical analysis. And... What about mixed DNA? You mentioned mixed DNA. What are the complications with mixed DNA and how do you know it's mixed DNA? So there's two kinds of reasons your DNA would be mixed with something. One reason is it could be like an old piece of remains and it's just contaminated with bacteria, right? So that's one scenario. And in that scenario, the problem is that if you have like, you know, some DNA and it's 99% bacteria, you need special methods, of which we've developed some, to basically pull out the human part. Otherwise, you have very little human DNA to work with, and it'll be thrown off, particularly on these more advanced forms of testing, by whatever information um, and, and material comes from the non-human sources, which is usually bacterial contamination. The other kind of um, situation would be when you have a mixture of, like, multiple humans. So it might be that um, you know, the, 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 the perpetrator had grabbed on a to the victim and, and left a stain on their shirt. Maybe there was some blood on their shirt. But the shirt was also worn by the victim. So you could imagine there might be a mixture. Maybe it's predominantly the perpetrator's DNA, but there's also some victim DNA on there. So understanding that mixture ratio is, uh, is really key. And there are, there, are, there are laboratory tests that you can do. There are DNA tests you can do. Um, depending on the scenarios, lots of different methods you can use and tricks to basically estimate what the, um, what the ratio is between uh, a victim and, uh, and, and, and the suspect. Um, and so, so once you determine that ratio, then, then you can do some math and you'll obviously have to collect more data, right? Because if you're, if you're dealing with like a 50-50 mixture, then the consequence is that for one test, you're gonna collect half as much information for both individuals. So you need to collect more data, you need some fancy math, but what you can do with that is you can then um, separate out the mixture. And without getting into like extraordinary detail um, that will probably bore everybody, sequencing is actually a really powerful way to do that because 
Um, other methods like STR testing or even some of the new advanced methods, they're they're really tricky because they they combine they combine in the signal for any given position on the DNA or any marker, they combine the contribution of all the DNA that's there. And then it makes it hard to tease it apart. Sequencing is really cool because sequencing is actually reading individual DNA molecules. And so you'll collect data from both components to a mixture, if there's two people in the mixture, but they're inherently already separated. They're just mixed in the same file and you got to sort them out. That makes it a more tractable problem um, then, for example, trying to compare a signal that looks weaker because it has got competing DNA evidence for two different people in it. Um, so anyways, more information than you want to know, but, but we regularly have to deal in the forensic space with scenarios where there's more than one human in the mixture and uh, scenarios where there is human, but then also overrun by other stuff that is not human, like bacteria. And, and taking, uh, being able to detect that and then address that is critical because if you have any noise in the genealogical profile that you're building, then people that are good matches will actually look a lot further, you know, more distant than they really are. And the distant matches will disappear altogether. Um, the genealogical database tries to match you to people based on the similarity between your DNA and theirs. And so if you introduce artifacts or noise that might be the consequence of other folks in that mixture, then um, then the consequence is that you no longer match the people as well as you should. And it'll it'll throw off the genealogical research and uh, and that's not good. It'll be harder to solve the case. As Cindy's remains were heavier than expected, we asked David if DNA could be extracted from cremated remains. So, I mean, if you truly cremate remains and you just have ash, you're not going to get DNA from that. But as it turns out, sometimes when you when you cremate remains, and I'm not an expert in cremation, but apparently what I hear is that when you cremate bodies, that sometimes not all the bone is fully uh, consumed and turned to ash. And if you have fragments or pieces that weren't fully burned, then there's certainly potential to get DNA. Now, having said that, I will tell you, if you could do anything to destroy DNA, heat's the worst. Like, you don't want to heat... DNA up. It, it just it just destroys DNA. But again, having said that, you know, we've worked with burned remains before and we've had varying success. So it is possible to do, but you could not bring someone, you know, usually when when, when you cremate somebody, I believe they filter the, the ash and, and you're left with like a, a, a in your urn is, is just ash. And if you brought that somewhere, I, I, I could not imagine that you'd be able to get DNA from that, if that makes sense. And if there was more than one person in the same cremation, but there were some bone fragments left, do you think it's possible to get DNA? I mean, you can get DNA, but then the issue of sorting out the folks in that mixture would be very hard because as I told you, when you when you have a mixture, you're gonna have to collect more information, right? Because for every unit of DNA or every unit of DNA data, you're now sharing it across more than one person. And so, you know, you're going to get small quantities of DNA from, from burned remains. And if you have mixed remains in there, it just gets trickier. I mean, ideally, you'd want to individually test different chunks of, of bone separately. And then hopefully those aren't mixtures. Because, yeah, a, a mixture with low quantity of DNA is just, that's going to be a challenge to get good quality data. And, and again, I want to contrast this. You can generate data. That's no problem. The thing is, how do you generate data that you could use 
to establish a proper relationship. That's the hard part. Generating data is easy. It's like a computer program. If you put data in, you'll get data out. But the data is garbage if the input's garbage. And so if you don't have if you don't have enough DNA molecules and the condition of the DNA is sufficiently bad, then um, then you're not going to get information that will be helpful in establishing a human ID. We know many of you out there are armchair detectives who love to help however they can. So we asked David if there is anything that people at home can do to help. The public can do two things, I think. One thing the public can do is, is yeah, if you tested with a consumer genetics company, um, contributing your data is really valuable because um, with all these markers, hundreds of thousands of markers, there's a chance that you could be distantly related to, to this unknown victim, for example, that you're talking about. And it's, it's not related in the sense that like you'd have Thanksgiving with these people, but you know, you could be a third or fourth cousin to somebody. I'm not even, I don't even know who my second cousins are, but I definitely don't know my fourth cousins and, 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 and you probably don't know yours, but, but you know, you may be a fourth cousin or a third cousin to someone that was a victim of a crime and your data point that you contribute by uploading your DNA data could be instrumental in identifying that person. It would be the difference between that person getting a name and being reunited with family and not. And and likewise, if you're searching for someone that's committed a crime. So, you know, the key thing is like, it's not like you need one match. You need a lot of matches on both sides of the family tree for the unknown person. And so everyone, everyone that contributes adds that probability that you'll find someone on both sides of the family that can um, that can that can help anchor them on a on a family tree, and so so there's a huge value there. Um, we uh, we have a program on DNA Solves, so our, our site dnasolves.com. We have a program also where we've uh, we've taken to crowdfunding some of the cases that um, that law enforcement uh, either cannot fund or does not have the money to fund, and and we've had some success there as well. There are, there are some cases that are just going to captivate. Uh, general interest of the public. And so, you know, whether you're helping fund a case, and we've got some of our cases that we're funding on that site now, you guys can take a look. Um, whether you're contributing your DNA, um, maybe you're just spreading the word. I have to tell you this crazy story. We um, we did an announcement with a law enforcement agency on a new case that we were going to start. And we announced the details of the case and kind of what we were doing. And in 48 hours, before we were able to even uh, accept the material, somebody from the family of the unknown recognized the details. And just the, just the act of sharing the news and publicizing the case was sufficient to generate a good lead. And, and they did a familial test and found that they were in fact related. And so um, it, it was <laughs> instantly solved without any DNA testing. So I think, I think people can help by contributing your data. I think if people are interested, they can help crowdfund and, and, and pay for the testing in, in instances where law enforcement is not able to. And I think they can just share the news and spread the word. Some of these cases are old and the sheer act of getting the news out will remind somebody. The internet's very powerful, it connects everyone. Then you never know if you won't be able to get a good tip. We got one for a case and, um, and then that'll help solve it. End of the day, it doesn't matter how the cases get solved, whether you use DNA testing, you spread the word. The point is, we, we just we want to reduce this this kind of this backlog of cases that are unsolved the um, National Institute of Justice calls this like the silent mass disaster this accumulation of unsolved cases 
that, that really generally never get solved. And so anything we can do to shine light on that, I think is, is super valuable. There's a humanitarian value and it's just, it's just great for society. A lot of times we hear about how law enforcement detectives, their budgets are very limited. And we also hear how expensive DNA testing is. On, on an average exchange with a detective, what cost is that department looking at? I mean, it, it depends on the kind of case they're going to work, but, but I can tell you DNA testing is one of the cheaper things that you will do. Um, you know, just like walk through the math, like think about, you know, a detective in the United States and how much money they make in one month, just one month of having to like pay their salary to work. There's a cost right there. And, you know, you hire a forensic sketch artist that's going to charge more than zero dollars to do a facial reconstruction. You might even need an anthropologist if it's just bones, right? And chemical testing and other kinds of things that are done. And generally it's more than one detective. So you've got multiple people working on a case. Um, you know, if, if you were to think of just the costs of like one month's salary, that, that's probably on par with what DNA testing would cost. But when you think about some of these cases and how many people have been working on them for how many months or years, and the other chemical testing that was done, other methods of DNA, uh, you know, DNA work that was done before that, um, you know, anthropology, all, all the stuff that goes into it. I think the costs that you end up spending for advanced testing are very tiny. And, and it's something to think about because there is a lot of information you can glean from this kind of testing. You know, even something as simple as just genetic ancestry is very, very easy to assess from um, from a, from a, from, a, from an advanced DNA test, and so so you know, you can spend a lot of money trying to estimate ethnicity, draw lots of faces. We had a we had a case that we worked in Snohomish County in Washington. Um, has been on the news. I bring it up because it's the most recent thing I think we reported out in the news a few weeks ago. And um, in that case, they had a guy that had been unknown for 30 years. Um, he was under the bottom of a, he was in the bottom of a lake for six or seven years, floated to the top, um, spent the rest of the last 26 years at the ME's office. They couldn't identify him. He didn't, he didn't hit in CODIS and there was virtually no usable DNA left. And, um, I bring this example up because they had a hard time, you know, accurately assessing, confidently assessing his ancestry. So, um, they, they drew him in a couple different uh, ethnicities, um, biracial, just a couple different renditions. And ultimately like that doesn't help if you, if you can't, if you can't get the, the, um, the ancestry and his appearance down, it doesn't help identify him. And uh, in decades of, of work spent on this case, you know, so, I mean, you could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars um, trying to work a case over, over a period of 10 or more years and, um, and, and get nowhere. So I think the better way to think about this, and sorry that I took a tangent, because you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this question as, as you ask it, you know, I think the better way to ask the question is like, what, what is the cost? What is a dollar per solve? And you know, you know, the, the dollar pair actually identifying someone. And I think from that perspective, you know, the kind of approaches we offer are going to be um, leading to identities for pennies on the dollar of what any other method would spend, just because of how quickly we can do it. And then again, just just in general, like how our costs are just just a minuscule fraction of the rest of the investigation. So 
Um, anyways, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's kind of my sense is like, we're probably the cheapest part of the investigation. Finally, we asked David something I've always wondered, and I'm sure many, uh, many of you have too. Is there a way you can change your DNA? There's no really good way to change your DNA. You know, there, there are situations where people have had bone marrow transplants and the donor material will have, you know, cells that, you know, produce other cells that have different DNA. And you might, you might become what people call chimeric. It's not common, but you'll have, you may have a representation of more than one cell type in your DNA. In fact, when you're pregnant, there's going to be some circulating DNA that actually comes from your child. So there are these situations, you know, some people are born as chimeras. Um, it's very rare, but um, to, to completely change your DNA profile, I would say is, is not something that's possible right now. So yeah, you're, you're pretty much stuck with the DNA profile you have. All right, David, was there anything else about DNA that, that you feel like we or our listeners should know about? that people that want to get involved, whether it's to share their DNA, whether it's to read about some cases or maybe even spread the word or help fund a case. If anyone wants to get involved, I would love for you to recommend them to check out our website, dnasolves.com. We'd love feedback. We'd love recommendations for cases that people want us to work. You know, if we're crowdfunding, we can take recommendations from the crowd on what cases to work. That's how we ended up working the hiker case but you'll see that we recently funded on that site. So I think I think that's the only other thing is maybe for you guys to follow up with a, a call for folks to check out our website. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. 
Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. From issuance, please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.